Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajah Dali. And Waj, we have a fantastic guest joining us today. Please do us the honor of an introduction. So our guest today is author Nathan Thrall, who wrote a fantastic book that came out this year called A Day in the Life of Abed Slama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy, which has been named a best book of the year by The New Yorker, Time, The Economist, The Financial Times, The Irish Times, The New Statesman, and Booklist, and was selected as a New York Times book review editor's choice. Uh, Nathan has spent a decade at the International Crisis Group, where he was director of the Arab-Israeli Project. He has taught at Bard College. And even though he's originally from California, he has chosen, like a masochist or an optimist, to live with his family in Jerusalem. And I have read the book, and uh, it is a fantastic book. I have promoted it because I think your book, Nathan, through this real-life story, this real-life tragedy, which we will talk about, encapsulates the madness... The, the, the tragedy, the sadness, and the surreal aspect of occupation, right? And before I talk about the book, though, and before we get into the book itself, what folks don't know is that your book and the release of your book has coincided with what's happening in Israel-Palestine right now. And you are an American writer, you're a Jewish writer living in Israel, you've done a nonfiction book, and your book is so threatening, Nathan, that during your book tour, You've had uh, cancellations. You've had uh, revenue being pulled. Uh, you've ha- had to sign potentially loyalty uh, and, and some uh, some oaths that you won't criticize Israel, and you have refused. Before we get into the book itself and, and the details of the book, because again, I think the plot of the book deserves to be you know people have to know the story. What is so threatening, Nathan? about you and this book at this moment that has forced so much censorship? Well, thank you for that very generous introduction. Um, You know, I would like to say that most of the people who are canceling the events um, that I had scheduled or who pulled ads uh, from national radio in the U.S. for the book had read the book and found it very threatening and decided they needed to cancel these events because they found the book so threatening. Um, Alas, I think it's more likely that these people simply um, 
had not read the book and feared the notion that uh, it was portraying Palestinian lives in a sympathetic way and that that was enough. Um, mm. So I, I think that most of the cancellations really have come from this kind of post 9-11 uh, moment that we've been in, in the US and in Europe uh, since October 7th. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, it, it would be flattering to me if, if it were the case that, that, you know, people read the book and were, uh, realized that this was going to change a lot of minds in a way that they didn't like. I think it's more likely that they're just trying to attack anything that they think is going to portray Palestinians in a sympathetic light. You know, I think that what I find the most troubling about the censorship and about the kind of rash of censorship and cancellations that we have seen since October 7th and silencing of voices is that anything that attempts to provide an analysis or context around a critique of the Israeli government is automatically turned into anti-Semitism which is the quickest way to get anything to be shut down uh, for discussion. And, you know, I, I have told folks on this show and on others that I had the opportunity to go to Israel and Palestine in 2015. And as a queer Black American, um, going to Israel and Palestine was probably one of the most surreal experiences I'd had. Um, experiencing the type of overt discrimination that has been normalized in this country, protested against, and we had an entire Civil Rights Act um, that allowed for us to kind of progress side by side, Black and, and, and white Americans to a certain extent, that that did not exist where I visited in Israel and Palestine. And I wonder, your book was about is about trying to bring forth a different lens, one that isn't about painting an entire community and population of people with the broadest of brush to say that everyone who is Palestinian must be a terrorist. Everyone must be a Hamas sympathizer if in fact you articulate a position against a government. I liken it to Donald Trump. If I am an American, does that mean that I am MAGA? Does that mean that I am for uh, the policies that he put forth under his presidency. And so I wonder for you, when you experience and you see this rash of censorship, you know, what should be the response if silence is wielded with the kind of tactics that it's been um, to disallow real thoughtful contextualized analysis? Well, I mean, um, the first thing I think we need to do is to ensure that we're very clear about our language and um, clear about what is criticism of Israel, what is criticism of Zionism, and what is anti-Semitism. And those lines have been very deliberately blurred for um, many years. And, um, and so, you know, we, we're seeing it done with new fervor since October 7th, but this is a very old uh, campaign. You know, we have um, a definition of anti-Semitism that has been put forward by the pro-Israel community, uh, known as the IHRA definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition. And uh, this de definition is so broad 
and all-encompassing in its examples that you are able to include within it all kinds of criticism of Israel that is not anti-Semitic in any way. And that definition has been promoted abroad and promoted in the U.S. The State Department uh, has endorsed it. And it's been used even uh, against me. I taught a class um, at Bard College last year that was called Apartheid in Israel-Palestine. And the Israeli consulate uh, in New York uh, came to Bard and said, this class needs to be shut down because it falls within uh, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Now, the United Nations has uh, a special rapporteur has issued a long legal report showing that Israel is practicing apartheid according to the uh, definition in the 1973 Convention Against Apartheid and in the Rome Statute. Um, the leading human rights organizations uh, in in Israel and in Palestine and uh, internationally, Human Rights Watch, uh, Amnesty International, B'Tselem, Al Haq. All of them have come forward with reports saying that Israel is practicing apartheid. Leading Israeli uh, government uh, former ministers have uh, said that Israel is practicing apartheid. The Netanyahu appointed director of the Mossad has said that Israel Mm. is practicing apartheid. But when a class was taught uh, investigating Israeli apartheid, the title of the class was Apartheid in Israel-Palestine, and, and looking into all of these reports, and this is a certainly a subject worthy of academic inquiry, um, it was deemed to fall within the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism mm. by the Israeli consulate. Um, now, whether they genuinely believe the class is anti-Semitic or not doesn't matter. It's being used as a tool to try and shut down what is entirely legitimate uh, inquiry about Israel. And I think the shutting down is what we've noticed the past two months, right, Nathan? I mean, I think people forget that it's not just Palestinians and Muslims and Arabs who are being silenced. You are, again, a Jewish-American author who lives in Jerusalem. Uh, David Velasco, a well-known white man, a writer of Art Forum, uh, got fired for signing a petition, right? You had the Jewish-American writer of eLife who uh, got fired for retweeting an Onion article. Melissa Barrera, the Latina actress from Scream, uh, posted an article written by a Jewish scholar uh, on genocide, and she got uh, canceled from the, the upcoming Scream movie, right? There's so many examples of this happening, and specifically in academia, that seems to be, if you will, the, the, the forum by which a lot of right-wing actors are using the current conflict to crush not just uh, those who want to you know, broaden the conversation, critique Israel policies, maybe humanize Palestinians, but also go against DEI initiatives. That's what's been happening openly. They're openly telling you the plot, uh, specifically what happened with um, the, the hearings with uh, the, uh, you know, Claudine Gay of Harvard and also the UPN president who had to uh, resign. Specifically, there's something that's really troubling, which I alluded to in the beginning, about what happened uh, when it came to uh, a university forcing people to sign kind of a loyalty pledge. Tell us what happened at the University of Arkansas. Yeah. So at the at the University of Arkansas, I was invited to speak, and I was told um, that in order to speak, I would need to sign a pledge that I am not boycotting Israel or its uh, settlements. 
and the um, the pledge is required by Arkansas state law. There are more than uh, 30 states in the U.S. that have passed similar laws that require anybody who's contracting with the state to uh, sign a pledge that they're not boycotting Israel or the settlements. Now, I refused to sign that pledge, and so I haven't spoken at the uh, University of Arkansas. I think many of the faculty at the University of Arkansas hate this law and hate mm. that they have to ask people uh, to sign it and that their students don't actually get to hear certain speakers who um, might even have no intention of boycotting Israel, but certainly are opposed to this infringement on their freedom of expression. I mean, the fact is that you can boycott the fossil fuel industry and speak at these universities. You can uh, boycott the Republican Party. You can boycott China. You could boycott, you know, the Democratic Party. It doesn't matter. You could boycott literally anything except Israel and its settlements. And if you do that, you can't speak at this school. Um, so that is a, an insane reality. And I think many people didn't even know about these laws uh, mm. until, until quite recently. One thing I did want to say about these hearings with uh, the Harvard president that, that you mentioned is I, I think that the press has been um, really negligent in their reporting of those hearings and of what happened on these campuses, and particularly the Times. Um, I have lost count of how many articles in the New York Times have uh, described those hearings, described what was stated by the presidents of Harvard and Penn and MIT, and repeated that they refused to give a clear answer about uh, uh, co condemning calls for genocide or restricting speech that would be calling for genocide. And without even referring back to what it is that they're calling a call for genocide, what is the mm. speech utterance that is being described in that way? It was this congressperson, mm -hmm. uh, Stefanik, mm -hmm. who described mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the chant of globalize the intifada or, you know, free Palestine from the river to the sea, who, who uh, characterize those chants, which are not calls for genocide in any way, as calls for genocide. And that now every article I'm reading in, mm. in, the, in the Times and elsewhere is, is regurgitating this claim Isn't that the presidents stuck? refused to oh, condemn calls for genocide. They, 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 they definitely erred in those hearings by not calling out this congressperson and saying, I'm sorry. But saying intifada is not a call for genocide. I'm sorry, but saying from the river to the sea is not a call for genocide. But the, but you know you wouldn't even know that reading the the, the reporting on on this issue. You know, well, I mean that is that has been a failure of journalism um, for quite some time is not to provide any type of context whatsoever, and you know. I will say, as somebody who trains people in the media and is in the media myself, the failure to prepare those presidents mm -hmm. was outrageous to me um, because their responses, um, they were not prepared. They were not prepared. And so there could not have been a pushback on the congresswoman in a way that there should have been by providing an explanation or asking her, what is it that you mean when you say genocide? Because not one person was marching and uh, as if uh, a la Charlottesville saying that Jews will replace us, right? Yeah. Like no one was doing that. 
Um, And in these letters that other student organizations had signed on to, again, nothing was saying anything that, you know, uh, a Donald Trump and the Republican Party has said over the four years that he was president and since then. Um, Nathan, you know, I want to ask you this before we we dive into into parts of your book, which is most recently, 153 nations, right, aligned with the UN, have called for and signed on for a resolution, which we know is largely, you know, uh, political. It, It really has no impact to call for a ceasefire. The United States um, said no, right? Has voted against it again. Um, They offered up a a statement that has been shared on social media that I read, and I will tell you, I don't agree with anything that was said in it. Um, I don't agree with the fact that a, a ceasefire to provide humanitarian aid, to get more hostages released, um, would somehow strengthen Hamas. I don't agree in the fact that if you know a terrorist organization is using human beings as human shields, that you blow right past those human shields. I don't agree, you know, because I center humanity um, and compassion in, in how I think and what I say. What do you think, though, about the growing calls for a ceasefire in this country and kind of this, what I will refer to as a great awakening that is happening with American citizens that are recognizing for decades where their tax dollars have gone and are seeing in real time, unlike with other wars where you are waiting for networks to funnel in information and images and photographs, they're seeing it in real time all across social media platforms what do you think about the United States's continual stance versus what the people of this country and their growing calls for a ceasefire will result in? So I think it's a it's a good question. Um, the Biden administration clearly feels that there is some kind of political price to pay for their support of Israeli bombardment of Gaza with U.S. weapons uh, when a significant portion of the U.S. public would like to see a ceasefire. And um, you have um, large numbers of um, Arab Americans in states like Michigan who are saying today that they will not vote for Biden. Um, They may not vote for Trump, they may not vote, but that they won't vote for Biden. And, um, and so I think it's critical that that feeling of pressure, that that feeling that Biden will pay a price for this policy, that needs to be amped up in order to get to a ceasefire sooner. Because, um, you know, at present, the discussion is the U.S. is saying they want to push for, for uh, um, Israel to end the, this phase of the war within the next th- several weeks. And Israel is saying we want several months. Um, and what can change that is if there is a stronger call among Americans for a ceasefire now. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, very important. And um, 
and it's it's what every American needs to be doing is is to be uh, demanding a ceasefire and making clear that there will be a political price to pay um, if uh, if the leader, the president of, of of the U.S. and the leader of the Democratic Party is is uh, uh, supporting uh, Israeli uh, siege of Gaza, uh, starvation of two million innocent people of food, fuel, water, and electricity, and this uh, uh, bombardment that is killing so many civilians. From The New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, uh, Danielle used the word awakening, and I feel like with your book in particular, it's not a polemic. It's a it's a two hundred page nonfiction story where you interview individuals and families who uh, are unfortunately brought together due to a tragedy the tragedy of um, a school bus uh, that turned over uh, in occupied territory. Uh, it's a book that I think if people read, it, it illuminates the, like I said, the, the frustration and the tragedy and the absurdity of the occupation. Uh, and it does a, a word that I hate using, it humanizes people. I mean, I always hate using that word because we're all human beings. <laughs> so, but it humanizes Palestinians or in the sense they're not perfect. They're flawed people, in the, in, but they're trying to navigate a, a frustrating situation. And, and I, that's probably why I think, Nathan, your book is so uh, dangerous to some people, because you, you're kind of detached. It's not a polemic. You just share the facts and you interview people and it reveals this absurdity that we as the United States fund and support. And so without giving away too much, uh, tell us about this particular story uh, in this book and why you decided to spend so much time unpacking this story, which in my opinion is a, and I hate using this word, a beautiful microcosm uh, of the occupation. 
Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for that. I mean, that is uh, absolutely what my ambition for the book was, was to tell a tight story that would actually um, uh, illuminate the entire story of Israel-Palestine. And um, the way that I do it in this book is, is I tell about a tragic uh, bus accident uh, that involved a school bus full of kindergartners who uh, live in a walled enclave just a couple miles away from my home in Jerusalem. They're surrounded on three sides by a 26-foot-tall concrete wall, and on the fourth side by another wall, which runs through a segregated road, Route 4370, uh, famously known as the Apartheid Road, because it has Israeli traffic on one side, Palestinian on the other, and a giant uh, wall running through the middle of it. So there are about 130,000 people living today in this walled uh, enclave. And half of it has been annexed by Israel formally. Half of it has not been annexed. All of it is in a state of utter neglect. No playgrounds, uh, no lanes in the streets, uh, unpaved, very few mun municipal services, people forced to burn trash uh, in the middle of the street. And they are looking out of their apartment windows straight across on the other side of the wall at uh, gorgeous playgrounds and the uh, uh, manicured grounds of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and, um, you know, upper middle class uh, uh, single family homes. And I tell the story of a group of kindergartners who took a trip um, to a play area because there were none in this uh, enclave and because they were not permitted to go to the play areas on the other side of the wall that were very close by. So they took a long and circuitous route, uh, passed through a checkpoint and were struck by a giant semi-trailer. The bus flipped over, uh, caught fire. Six uh, Palestinian children died as well as one of their teachers. And the people who were there at the scene of the accident were the ones who were left to deal with it because this occurred in an area of utter neglect. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians living in areas where the Palestinian Authority is not allowed to enter and Israel basically doesn't go except as a policing force. And so the ordinary bystanders were taking these uh, injured children off of this burning bus and going off in different directions depending on what kind of ID they had. If they had a blue Jerusalem ID that permitted them to enter Jerusalem, they would take a kindergartner in the backseat of their car and drive off to the superior Jerusalem hospitals. If they had a green West Bank ID that didn't allow them to enter Jerusalem, they'd go in the opposite direction toward Ramallah. And the parents themselves who live in this walled ghetto have, some of them have green IDs, some of them have blue IDs, you have it in the same family, different people with different colored IDs. They show up at the scene of this crash and when they've gotten there, there's a big crowd and all of the kids have already been evacuated. Um, they've been evacuated by the ordinary bystanders. It was more than a half an hour before the first Israeli fire truck showed up. And the parents themselves, including the title character of the book, Abed Salama, um, he, he's hearing rumors about where these kids are. He says, where are the kids? And they say, 
some of them are at this Jerusalem hospital, some of them are at this other Jerusalem hospital, some of them are at the Israeli military base a minute up the road, some of them are at the Ramallah hospital. And because he himself has a green ID, he can't go to the hospitals in East Jerusalem or in West Jerusalem. He can't enter an Israeli military base. And so he goes to the Ramallah hospital. And from there, he searches for his kid and he calls on relatives who do have a blue ID who are able to go to Jerusalem hospitals. They go and search for his child at the hospitals in Jerusalem. And we follow his journey over more than uh, a day to find out just where his child is and what happened to his child. And through his story, the story of some of the bystanders who heroically rescued kids from this burning bus, the story of the founder of the settlement next to where this accident took place, the story of some of the uh, paramedics who came to the scene, and the social workers, and also the architect of the wall, which is its own kind of character in this book, uh, which shapes so much of the outcome on that day. Um, through all of those stories, we really learn the whole story of Israel-Palestine. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I mean, it is just extraordinary. Um, it's extraordinary in its grief, right? Um, of when I was there and visited and saw those walls, and I, you know, I don't like they're humongous, right? Like you're just wrapped in concrete like just looking up to see sky can't see on either side and i just think that the idea that we refer to a place as the only democracy in the middle east that has two sets of ids for roads doesn't make any sense to me you don't need to be an international scholar to understand that um and I think that that, to me, when you go back to what you said at the top around language and having to be really thoughtful about the language that you use and what is characterized as anti-Semitism, anti what is characterized as apartheid has everything to do with language and language has everything to do with power. 
um, and who gets to decide. And I just think that your story, it is unfortunate that the people who've chosen to ban it probably did not read it, um, does allow for humanity to be shown. Um, and that's how change happens. And that's why it's so dangerous, right? Because when you see people's humanity, it becomes less likely that you can stand by as violence and cruelty rains down on them. And so I just want to say, you know, thank you um, for your work and thank you for, for what it is that you have been doing and been sharing and writing about and talking about and working on. But I'll give the, the last question um, to Waj. I, I have a final question, Nathan. You know, you, you are an American who's decided to raise your family in Jerusalem. And as a person who's gone there three times and Daniel's gone there, I always ask people, why are you building your house uh, on lava, right? Because <laughs> it's like, oh, there's fireballs. Well, I'm like, yeah, but you built your house on lava. You're near a vol volcano. And so it's, it's an audacious act of hope that you, you, you took your family there. And so the question I have for you is, why stay there and what's your hope for that country? So, um, to the first question, you know, a big part of it is, is professional. You know, I, I, um, I feel, first of all, a moral responsibility for, uh, what is happening in Israel, Palestine. I feel it as an American citizen. It, it's my, uh, taxpayer dollars that are going toward, um, uh, keeping this unjust system in place. I feel a moral responsibility as an American Jew. And for those reasons, I also, you know, when Israel claims to be acting in the name of the Jewish people, um, and, and so for those reasons, I've devoted my professional life to working on, on, this, on this issue. And, um, and so that's kind of the, the fundamental reason why I live there. It's not so much driven by a belief that I'm going to see a resolution in my lifetime. In fact, I think that's quite unlikely. And in the acknowledgments of the book, I, I said that I, I don't think I'm going to see a resolution in my lifetime. I, I hope that it's possible there will be one in, in the lifetime of my um, three young daughters. Um, but uh, in terms of my own hopes for the place, the very long-term hopes you know, the most fundamental thing I hope for is a day where we see equality. Now, equality can be implemented in a million different ways. And uh, I'm not, you know, a partisan of one particular uh, approach. The bottom line for me is that whatever it is, it be equal, equal in individual rights, equal in collective rights. Um, and you know, I think that there's been a lot of focus on debating one state or two states and, you know, confederation and all of this. You know, none of those things are actually happening in the near term. Um, but before we even have those conversations, I think we need to be agreed on some basic principles. And one of the most basic ones is that whatever the outcome is, it needs to entail equality. And not everyone's in agreement on that. In fact, a lot of the proponents of two states are in favor of two states precisely because they don't want equality. So um, I think that uh, that's my, my basic hope, is to see equality in some form. 
it's it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic story. I really hope our listeners uh, read the book. Don't take my word for it. It's on the top 10 list of so many uh, prestigious uh, outlets. The Day in the Life of Abed Salama by Nathan Thrall. Thank you, Nathan, for your work. And I really do hope that cooler, calmer heads prevail and allow you a platform to talk about this story. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahdali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.